You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. Normally, Kyla Lee is here, but she is in a trial that is taking forever and she's got to get on an airplane tomorrow for another trial. Uh, very busy. So this is Paul Doroshenko and I am here with Stephen Dillon, who is another lawyer with me here in my office. Hey, everyone. Hi, Paul. Good to be with you. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you here. Uh, Stephen has been with uh, with Acumen Law since uh, August 2022, uh, fairly junior lawyer, but we basically headhunted him because we thought he was a good guy. And uh, how's your experience been so far? Oh, it's been great. I can't believe it's already been six months. I've uh, enjoyed working with everyone here and uh, yeah, just been Lear- great. Learned, learned a lot? Yeah, definitely. You've had some uh, training on uh Traffic, uh, traffic enforcement, laser radar. You've had uh, speed estimation training. You are uh, mm-hmm. dealing with uh, a million bits of correspondence and dealing with Crown Council basically every day on a variety of different things. Oh yeah, we're very busy over here, up to my eyeballs. But yeah, a lot of traffic matters, a lot of driving law matters. I see that you're here till late some days, eight o'clock. I also see that you come in some days at like seven a.m. <laughs> so you're working hard. I always appreciate it. You're doing a good job for your clients. Oh, thank um, you. I try. Some of the lawyers in the office have a significant public profile. For example, Kyla. And uh, then I guess less so me. I used to have more of a profile, but in any event, um, lots of uh, lawyers here don't have that big public profile. Uh, and that's okay too. We're not, uh, not putting any pressure on you here. Yeah, um, in any... we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, but uh, I, I can see you're a rising star, and you're going to be uh, you're going to be uh, uh, an impressive guy in the world of driving law as things move on. So you've already dealt with a number of tickets yourself, uh, which brings us to sort of our first topic here, and that is uh, um, fines with respect to tickets. So a little while ago, uh, and I think we discussed it on the podcast, the Saanich City Council uh, voted on a proposal to put pressure on the province to connect traffic fines, um, so Motor Vehicle Act fines, to a person's income. So what is always held out is the example of Finland, where there's this uh, legend of some hockey player who had a, a fine in excess of a hundred thousand U.S. dollars for speeding, um, and people seem to think that this is somehow appropriate and that we should be looking at this model in B.C. So this happened. Uh, you you saw the news and we discussed it. We have our own internal uh, chat uh, program in our office, which is like social media for the office, but also very useful. Um, but um, we discussed this in the office in Saanich. It was voted against, um, resoundly shut down. Was that about a month ago or something? Yeah, give or take. And uh, so now we have it in another municipality. This time it was put on city council's agenda in New Westminster by the mayor. And uh, city council voted on it and everyone voted for this. This was just like last week. 
uh, except, uh, or maybe early this week, I don't know, but uh, except for two councillors who voted against it. So uh, it looks like um, Mayor Patrick Johnstone uh, is the one who put the motion forward. And the idea here is to have means-tested traffic fines, enhanced enforcement in jurisdictions like in Europe, um, and that the uh, new Westminster City is now going to be uh, putting this forward at the next UBCM, which is the Union of BC Municipalities. Um, and that's a meeting that they have occasionally. I don't know if it's annually. I think it probably is at least annually. And then they come up with positions that they present to the government. And so I wanted to talk about this because now, you know, we thought it got shut down in Saanich. I went on um, the Mike Smith show, talked about it a little bit. And now here we've managed to sneak it through at a city council meeting. So here we go, folks. This is now going to be end up being something that becomes a discussion for a while until it either ends up becoming law or it ends up being shut down. And I was wondering now, Stephen, I mean, you you know, you and I talked about it briefly. We both have feelings about this. How do you feel about it? You're a hockey fan. It was a hockey player who got this one in Finland that's become the example for the world. What do you think? Do you, should, do you think a hockey player who's earning uh, millions of dollars a year should pay more than the uh, single mother who's living in a basement suite in Langley when they each get a ticket, one of them in their in their uh, G-Wagon and the other in their Honda Civic, uh, driving at the same speed? No, well, uh, I'm of the view, uh, and always have been, that the crime should fit the punishment. And so uh, I, I don't think that... The fine amount should be tied to someone's uh, wealth or their their assets. Um, we should be primarily looking at uh, the the offense here, and I just don't see the need for this. Uh, I mean, what problem is this solving? Is it really that big of an issue? And there's going to be just uh, tons of logistical problems. Well, that's an interesting thing. Um, I was just thinking, actually, you you <laughs> there was one 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 thing that you've been quite public, and you were a star in my in my Christmas on the moon music video. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, um, uh, an issue there of, of the punishment fitting the crime and how can you justify, I mean, even in this, this Finnish case, how can you justify a fine that that's high? Say, say it's 50 grand, say it's somebody who earns millions of dollars a year and the, the schedule they come up with based on your income in, in BC for your 20 kilometers in a, uh, an hour, uh, 20 kilometers over the speed limit is $50,000. How is that relative to the offense? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I just don't understand. Uh, is this a, a cash grab of sorts? I mean, I, I really don't. Well, I think the thing is that it's got to hurt equally is the idea. So, I mean, it's it's equal pain for the offense, but I think you also have to look, I think you're right. You have to look at the relative offense. Like, what is this really, um, how is it relative to the offense of going 18 or 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit? How can $50,000 ever be considered relative to the offense? Yeah. I mean, I, I will tell you because I've been in this for a long time. We have not changed fines in this province for well over a decade, uh, probably over two decades on most things. Uh, and, you know, I think there's, we're, we're long overdue for some fines to be increased. But then you get those circumstances already where we know, you know, and we deal with these ones that are out of town. You, 
you, you go to the interior of BC and, and generally speaking, not everywhere, like Prince George, the average wage is, is higher than many other parts of the country. But, you know, Williams Lake, uh, the average wage is much lower. You go to Valmont, the average wage is much lower. Uh, you know, Trail, the average wage might be higher than it is in Castlegar. Um, but uh, the point is that people are not necessarily flush with cash, and it does hurt a lot of people more. So, I mean, sitting there thinking about it, like in Vancouver, lots of people who are very wealthy and have no declared income. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I keep thinking about the bureaucracy that would be necessary in a circumstance like this to be able to do it. And that's been my primary focus is just like the need to do it. But can you imagine, can you imagine if you've got somebody who's got a fine that they're facing once they, you know, prove their, their income, maybe it's just CRA statements. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you would do if you had a a large income last year. And then you retired, and so you went into retirement income. So you went from making, you know, three hundred thousand dollars a year in twenty twenty three, and you get a fine, and now it's twenty twenty four, and you're making sixty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. You know what are they going to assess it on? Um, so the bureaucracy would be huge. And who's going to pay for the bureaucracy? Well, that's been my primary focus, but you know, I just think like the the issue is if you are are wealthy and you're facing a a huge fine what efforts are you going to put into fighting it (laughs) you're going to hire a very good lawyer most likely to represent you you're going to hire kyla uh with you assisting kyla and um you know people are going to say spend whatever it takes in order to fight a ticket and of course you and i have discussed this in the past we've thought about the what is is there a cadillac cadillac defense we could provide people and, uh, you know, for the most part, we provide the Cadillac defense right now. But yeah, there is like, you know, we could do challenges to legislation. We do a, we would do a charter challenge to that uh, provision with respect to it being um, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah. Um, we would uh, we would likely go far into investigating. Uh, the history and training of the police officer, we would go far into investigating the circumstances. You know, yeah, you could spend $10,000 fighting a ticket. Um, that's uh, a $50,000 fine. But obviously, if you're successful, that would be a good investment. Yeah. And if you look at our overall win rate and speeding tickets, you would say that would be a very good investment Definitely. because the likelihood of success is pretty slim. And uh, there'd be tons of uh, privacy implications as well. Does anyone want the the government or ICBC to really dig deep into your financial records? I don't think too many people would be fans of that necessarily either. Well, that's the thing. It would end up in the court record, right? You have a sentencing hearing and you have to determine what the fine is going to be. And so you've got to show up with all of your, you know, lay it all bare. Uh, You know, this year my husband and I split... Um, you know, my finances went from this to this, this is, you know, where I spent my money on this. Oh my gosh, I lost on this investment. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been let go from Nordstrom's and (laughs) you're going to have to go and lay all of that out on the record in court for anybody to be able to come and see. It has to be public record. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So if it's going to be a sentencing, those things at the sentencing are on a public record. I mean, lots of times we're looking at it and we're doing a sentencing on a criminal case, for example, and the judge will say, you know, do you want to mark this as an exhibit? 
And some other judges will say this is necessary to mark as an exhibit on sentencing. So all of those documents end up sitting in a court file somewhere for anybody else who wants to snoop, to come along and snoop, and then, of course, publish on the internet. So pretty humiliating circumstance. I noted one of the things that um, that the one of the council members who voted against this in New Westminster was looking at it and saying, look, uh, the mayor has been on council for a long time, and during none of this time did he suggest that we do this with respect to municipal fines. So why should we be pushing the provincial government suddenly when we've never had the you know the courage or insight or whatever it takes to do it here in New West? No, it's a point, and I'm curious as well. Again, if this is all necessary, is there some sort of evidence? that suggests wealthier individuals are uh, committing traffic violations at a vastly disproportionate rate, and this is necessary to deter them? Well, that's an interesting thing, too. And that's part of the reason that I asked you to come on, not somebody else, was this. Um, There is other punishment that flows from a ticket that is a great equalizer, and that is a driving prohibition. So often when these things are discussed in the news... Um, the way they're discussed is, oh, there's this guy on the west side and he's got a Ferrari and he's got, you know, he just gets a ticket and it doesn't matter to him. He can just write a check. Well, if he writes a check, gets a ticket and gets another ticket and writes another check, and then he gets a third ticket and even a second ticket, he's going to face something, right? You know, as you know, the process kicks in. Well, you can explain the process. I don't have to do all the talking. Yeah, certainly. So if uh, you get too many violations on your motor vehicle record and you get too many demerit points uh, within a period of time, you're going to be sent a notice of intent to prohibit or a notice of prohibition from the superintendent of motor vehicles who has reviewed your driving record and uh, deems it to be in the public interest to prohibit you. Unsatisfactory driving record. And uh, the... uh, Basically, a red light flashes on a computer when you get a ticket and somebody stops to look at your driving record and they've got their own internal formula, but um, driving records are so different, right? Because the different period of time and the different offenses you can get and the number of years of driving and sort of the pattern of behavior. Uh, But the superintendent of motor vehicles regulates whether or not you get to continue to drive, whether you can have a license. Whether you're wealthy or not. And whether you're wealthy or not. So if you are one of those people who gets tickets, um, you know, you might be looking at it and saying it's only 196 bucks or it's only $368 or what have you. Uh, That's a, it's a bit of a bait and switch, right? You pay that ticket. You think that's going to be the end of it. And then you discover, oh my God, my car insurance has doubled and... I've got a letter from the superintendent of motor vehicles saying they're going to prohibit me from driving for three months. So if this is an issue where people are saying that the punishment is disproportionate as a result of one's ability to pay, they are not taking into account the thing that really hurts, which is a driving prohibition. I mean, you drive all the time. You drive into work every day. You drive to court every day. Um, you know, a $196 fine for you as a lawyer is not the same as it is for somebody who works, um, you know, at Home Depot. But, uh, and of course it's different for you than for a hockey player, but the hockey player also wants to drive. Mm -hmm. And, And the person at Home Depot also needs to drive and they are all facing the great equalizer. 
which is the superintendent of motor vehicles. The real uh, thing that you could say is probably the one sort of disproportionate thing is that, um, uh, of course, if you've got the money, you can hire a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, we're not particularly expensive, I can say. Uh, you know, it's as we mentioned on the podcast, there was somebody who set up and has been shut down again many times over, actually, um, uh, a, a paralegal um, who uh, started uh, acting as counsel without uh, authorization and the courts have uh, continued to say that this is unauthorized practice and uh, and there's an order against him to stop him from doing this. Um, but in any event, the, uh, you know, he was, his argument was that it was a um, access to justice issue uh, and that there was a shortage of people doing this. Obviously, you know, anybody calls us uh, and, uh, you know, so long as we, we all agree, we'll take their case. And we were charging less than he was. Uh, on some things or the same price. So there's no access to justice issue, but it's not an issue. I mean, that the, uh, what I, I guess, what was my point? My point was that if there is a, um, an impediment to, uh, it being fair, it's that somebody who's got more money can afford to hire a lawyer. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, traffic tickets, there's never any legal aid. So the government's never paying for your lawyer in traffic court. Um, having said that, you know, traffic court, generally speaking, is a pretty fair process. And, you know, yeah, I've watched self-represented people end up convicted when they would be acquitted had they hired us. Uh, but most of the time, those people haven't even sought out to hire a lawyer. They've made that decision. And a lot of those people I see in traffic court who are self-represented just think that they can just save the money despite the fact that they could afford to do it. Yep. And it has uh, real consequences too if you're unsuccessful. Yep. So uh, another thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is uh, the surprise topic. Um, and that is uh, the uh, another thing that I alluded to or I suggested I was going to talk about uh, in an earlier podcast. Now that Kyle is not here, I can basically control what we're going to discuss. And that is a, um, uh, a topic that has come up a number of times recently when the uh, BC Association of Chiefs of Police changed the AlcoSensor FST operators manual. So they released a new one uh, at the beginning of 2023, and they made very minor changes, which um, would not justify uh, changing the manual, and I cynically have pointed out the reason behind them in a previous one. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about what was not put in there. So I know that the government is concerned about refusal situations, um, where because it's been newsworthy a number of times, where people are pulled over and for whatever reason they can't provide a sample. And this is a, a controversy for a number of reasons. Like we've got the AlcoSensor FST is the approved screening device, breath tester, roadside breath tester that we use in BC right now, produced by intoximeters of St. Louis, Missouri. And that in BC replaced the AlcoSensor 4 DWF. Now I found lots of problems with the AlcoSensor 4 DWF and, and I am one of the reasons it was replaced. And you, Stephen, have had a chance to play with the AlcoSensor FST a little bit, and we've tested you uh, because we have our own uh, beer keg cooler here in the office. Uh, and um, we've used it, and you've been able to provide a sample and not had a problem. Uh, but I want to talk about the manual, and what I want to talk about is refusal situations. 
So when the AlcoSensor FST was introduced, there was a couple of key things that happened. Uh, number one, they locked out the manual button on the AlcoSensor FST. So in other words, if you're blowing into it, and you're blowing, 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 and you can't maintain the the blow long enough, so like basically about five seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, if you end, if you run out of air after three, and you do that uh, a few times, you end up charged with refusal. Yeah. Um, and the original manufacturer's version, uh, you could grab a sample after three seconds. So you could listen to the person blowing. They try to blow. Okay, you, okay, it took about three seconds. Okay, try and blow again. And then the second time, you could do a manual sample. Well, they locked that out when they introduced the AlcoSensor FST. And the AlcoSensor 4, which I have in my hand here to show Stephen, has an actual button on it that says manual. And it's to show the police officer that if you're having a problem with somebody, if for whatever reason they cannot make the minimum uh, standard of airflow, that you can grab a sample. Well, what we noticed, and uh, of course, Kyla is, um, uh, I think, the president of the Canadian Impaired Driving Lawyers Association, and she's on all these, in touch with all these other lawyers, and I talk to lawyers from Alberta all the time. In Alberta, they noticed when the FST came in that their refusals went way up. Now, they were using a different one. They were using a Intoximeter 400D in Alberta, um, which was a different manufacturer, a different device. We noticed that refusals went way up when they introduced the AlcoSensor FST in BC. Now, what does that tell you? What, what do you logically, what logically flows from that for you? The, the fact that uh, the amount of refusals went up? Yeah. Uh, to, to me, it just, uh, I don't think it has anything to do with a, a sudden change in people's willingness. Exactly, or exactly, exactly, exactly. It's not an issue. It's not like we were suddenly, you know, people in BC decided because they looked at the device and it looked differently that they were going to try and blow less mm -hmm. or that they were going to try and obstruct the process more often. It basically tells you one thing. It's an issue of the device. And I can tell you right now that the AlcoSensor 4 manual button, the police officers almost never used. Uh, but the AlcoSensor 4 requires slightly less air. Uh, and it's not in the manuals, but we have just found that with our own, um, with our own uh, investigations here in the office. And the interesting thing is, again, and I want to talk about this again, in the AlcoSensor FST manual, the most recent one that was introduced, there is no solution for a police officer who's got someone who keeps blowing and says, I'm trying to blow, and the device doesn't accept the sample. Mm -hmm. The officer has no alternative in the manual but to issue the person a refusal IRP or arrest them for refusing an ASD. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And you, well, and you think about it, you know, you, the, the actual offense is your engagement with the police officer in a circumstance where you're not entitled to talk to a lawyer and you must participate in it, and you're relying on the police officer, and you're hoping the police officer is operating everything correctly. On top of that, you've got a device that, again, leads to more of these, which is not an issue of changed behavior. Um, but the manual doesn't cover it. So you will be shocked to believe to hear this, Stephen. I know you're not involved in the IRP end of it, because that's basically me and Kyla. It's pretty strangely specialized. Um, but um, if the police officer 
were to come to the conclusion, there's no other alternate conclusion in the manual, you have to come to the conclusion that the person's refusing. But say the police officer is actually looking at it and saying, you know what, this person's small of stature, um, they seem to be struggling to provide a sample. I, I can't say that they're refusing because every time I lift it to their mouth, they like look, their eyes are bugging out as they're trying to blow uh, a sample. The police officer has no alternative. Then what are they going to do? Let them tool off down the road? No, they can't. <laughs> you know, there's no alternative in the manual. And so each police officer in those circumstances merely has to say, I came to the conclusion that they were refusing to provide a sample. Now, how is that justice? It's not. Uh, there's been uh, many cases. I'm sure you've heard about this as well. I remember uh, one stood out from a year or two ago. There was this nurse. I think she had Bell's palsy. And she was, uh, I don't know if she was returning from a shift, but sure. she... Um, Couldn't provide a sample. Yeah. yeah. And uh, some people can't form a seal on it. But I mean, those are people who have a disability. And I think on that basis, every one of those people should be suing. Um, and, uh, I think it's a, a clear situation of where the manual doesn't even contemplate people with a disability, but then there's the people who simply are just do not have the lung capacity at that moment, at that time to be able to do it or something else is going on. Like the police officer may not have given the right instructions or the mouthpiece not might, might not be seated properly. The actual flow sensor tube that runs down from the mouthpiece down to the motherboard um, you can't even get a pin in there. It's such a small tube. Um, and if it gets clogged with something, a bubble of spittle or something, you, you know, you never know what's going on, but there's no alternative. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is something that, uh, we're going to have to start working on in our office and, uh, we'll have to work on that one another day because right now it's time for my favorite time of the podcast. Uh, and that is the, the ridiculous driver of the week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. All right, Stephen, this is a good one. Uh, you you live in Surrey or Abbotsford? Uh, Abbotsford. Right You're now. in Abbotsford. So I did pick an Abbotsford ridiculous driver of the week. Um, and, uh, this was, <laughs> this was on the Abbotsford, uh, police, uh, Twitter account. Um, and it, uh, was from February 24th. So right in this week, 19 year old driver with his L. Okay. 165 kilometers an hour in a 60 zone with his L. Yikes. Yeah. He had no supervisor. I, one would think that a supervisor probably would have said slow down. Uh, but, uh, so he's driving with no supervisor. He's an L driver and he's going 165 in a 60 zone. So, uh, he automatically got a seven month driving prohibition there at the roadside and $700 in fines and the Dodge Magnum he was driving, which I assume would have been his parents was, uh, impounded. Um, but, I didn't uh, they could go that fast. Uh, <laughs> Dodge Magnum. Oh, I think they could probably cook right along. The Dodge Magnum is built on the same chassis as the Mercedes E-Class. Um, and so they handle it pretty well. It's the, uh, it's the same as the Dodge Charger, I guess. Um, and I think the Chrysler 300 and I've had those as rental cars and, uh, they are very competent vehicles, but, uh, an L driver with no supervisor, pretty bad, pretty entertaining. Um, 
the uh, usually when I'm looking for a ridiculous driver of the week, I'm looking for something that is uh, outstanding for BC. This is kind of outstanding. Um, the one thing that I think that we should also talk about um, was this bomb that was found along the highway in Kelowna. Have you followed any of this along? Uh, I read a headline, but uh, I don't know the specifics. Yeah, so RCMP came out and because uh, somebody was walking down Highway 97. Highway 97 is a funny one. It starts at the BC border and goes right up to the Yukon. Um, the um, But had spotted this thing that looked like a potential explosive device, and it turns out it was an improvised explosive device. They brought the bomb squad out. Um, and they didn't want to uh, alarm people too much because it wasn't anything of it, you know, it might have been there for months. It might have been somebody built it and abandoned it, didn't want to disassemble it. Who knows? Um, along the uh, highway. But a uh, that was a strange occurrence, and I think it just uh, deserves a mention on the Driving Law podcast purely for the purpose of putting it on the record here in case there is more. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, bomb along the highway. Um, a uh, strange thing to see. That's for sure in British Columbia. It's certainly not uh, anything that there's a pattern of yet. Yeah. But uh, weird, weird driving law story. Uh, I suppose the person who threw that there, put that there, could have been a ridiculous driver of the week, but maybe they were walking. Who knows? Yeah, possibly. Anyway, thank you for joining me, Stephen. And I look forward to uh, next week's podcast, Driving Law. Kyla Lee hopefully will be back. She's a better host than I am. Just doing my best here. Love you guys. Uh, if you need to find us, you can find us at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. You can phone us 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 